When I first taught Euclid's Elements, I was puzzled about several features of the number books, books seven through nine. I was not surprised to find that the students were puzzled too. For the most part, we were used to and comfortable with Euclid's style and method by that time. By the time we got through book six, you know, you're pretty comfortable with it. Uh, but we wondered, what is he up to in book seven? The long list of definitions at the beginning showed that he was launching into arithmetic. But why take up numbers at this point? Why not give us more theorems in plane geometry, or perhaps move on to solid geometry? What we got instead were propositions about relatively prime numbers and about numerical ratios. I was puzzled, and I'm very sure that I was not the only one in the classroom wondering what Euclid was up to. There were other uh, puzzling features of, of Euclid's presentation. After the usual enunciation in words, he displays numbers in the setting out as lines. Given the mathematical custom in which I was brought up, I would have liked to see the setting out done using algebraic notation. And I noticed that some of the students wanted that too. I bet some of you do. Um, this was evident from the way they wrote out the demonstrations on the board. I also wondered about the order in which he presented his propositions. Why doesn't he begin the study of arithmetic from the beginning, as one would expect from his practice in the geometrical books, and then go through theorems about numbers in a systematic way? Didn't look like he was doing that. Why in particular does he begin with his study of numbers with relatively prime numbers? That seems an odd place to start. Much later on, I had other questions about the arithmetical part of the elements. Why are these books placed after the treatment of plane geometry and before the treatment of solid geometry? I also wondered whether we should conceive of book 10, his treatment of irrational magnitudes, as belonging with books seven through nine rather than as standing on its own, uh, just maybe as a preparation for solid geometry. Uh, this, that question didn't occur to me when I first taught the elements. It only occurred to me later, but it, once you think about it, it seems like a pretty natural question. How do those things fit together? So my plan tonight is to address these questions though I make no promise to settle them all. Since much of my talk will concern the order of the elements and the number of books within it, it would be reasonable to set out the order in which they, the questions will be addressed. So I'll begin with a representation of numbers by lines, why he does that. Now this consideration stands apart from the somewhat entangled issue of the order of the propositions and of the books themselves. So in a way there's two parts to the lecture, one on numbers as lines, shown as lines, and then on the order. But anyway, I hope to show that an understanding of Euclid's method of representing numbers provides important clues for understanding the rest. In the second part of this lecture, I will ask about the appropriateness of including arithmetical books in a work of geometry. And in the third and fourth parts, I will deal with questions about the order of propositions in books seven through nine, and the order of, the books, in the, uh, of books in the elements, and the place of the number of books in that order. Okay, I hope that makes sense. All right, so that was all introduction. Part one, the representation of numbers by lines. Now, I want you to note that when I say line here, I mean straight line. Just don't wanna keep saying that. So I know that lines don't have to be straight, but that I unless I say otherwise explicitly, I mean a straight line. I remember uh, many times my much beloved colleague and friend, Molly Gustin, would say that numbers are lines. Despite the fact that we disagreed about this, I can understand why she said it. I think she was influenced both by Euclid's way of depicting numbers and by Descartes' extension of arithmetical concepts into geometry. In defense of her notion, 
Remember that it has become commonplace to speak of the Cartesian number line, right, as something that comprises all the real numbers. To be fair to Mrs. Gustin, I believe that she was trying to give an account of, um, that made sense of calling the real numbers numbers. But if the whole numbers, that is those with which Euclid was concerned, and also are also real numbers, the temptation is there to state in a categorical way that numbers are lines. Now, I think the identification of real numbers with lines is a mistake, but my concern here is not with that, that's a more modern consideration, but with interpreting Euclid. So whatever numbers were for Euclid, I, I don't think they were lines. Okay. Now, since Euclid defines number uh, in, at, in book seven, and he defines it as a multitude of units, one need only look at his definition of unit to see what he understands numbers to be, at least for the sake of the book. His definition is broad to say the least. He says that, quote, a unit is that by virtue of which each of the things that exist is called one. All right, mull that over freshman, you haven't read that yet, let me read it again. <laughs> a unit is that by virtue of which each of the things that exist is called one. Interesting. Thus, we can speak of one line, one sphere, one point, one cow, one instance of blue, one thought, and so on. Um, the unit is something common to all those, something that has a relevance to all of them, all right? He does not make clear what this common thing is, probably because he thought it was enough for the mathematician to see that the unit is the principle of number, and that it has some existence apart from its concrete or geometrical manifestations. The determining of the exact nature of number doesn't really belong to geometry, it belongs to a higher science, namely to metaphysics. So Euclid really doesn't have to determine that. Now, in my opinion, then, Euclid's use of lines to represent numerable things does not imply a thesis about the nature of number. Numbers or lines, no, I don't think he's making any kind of assertion about what numbers actually are uh, in some deep sense. What remains then is to explain why numbers, sorry, to explain why lines are suitable and in fact the best way available to him for representing numbers. Okay, so let me mention and then set aside an alternative not available to him since he, it had not yet been invented, the use of algebraic symbolism. The algebraic mode of presentation is often appealing to the student in that he is accustomed to it and it is less of a strain on the imagination and memory. Proofs in general become more concise and thus easier to follow when algebraic symbols are used. For these reasons, it is not uncommon to introduce Euclidean propositions to students in an algebraic mode. But this easy way of writing out the proofs has some disadvantages beyond encouraging a certain laziness. For most students, at least when they begin the studies here, algebra is no more than a set of memorized rules which have not been subject to critical examination. The use of algebra also brings in notions about number, I think, that are foreign to Euclid and perhaps questionable in themselves. <clears throat> so I think we can leave that aside. That, would not, that wouldn't even be possible. <clears throat> so at, at least two alternative methods for depicting numbers were available to Euclid and he rejected them or didn't make use of them. <clears throat> One was the use of numerals. This method, um, lest we just completely write it off, was used by the arithmetician Nicomachus in his Introduction to Arithmetic, a book that is in the great book set if you ever wanna look at it, that work is in there. <clears throat> so um, in his famous History of Greek Mathematics, Thomas Heath compares Nicomachus's method to Euclid's 
saying that the method of representing numbers by lines, quote, has the advantage that, as in the algebraical no notation, we can work with numbers in general without the necessity of giving them specific values. In Nicomachus, numbers are no longer denoted by straight lines, so that when different undetermined numbers have to be distinguished, this has to be done by circumlocution, which makes the propositions cumbrous and hard to follow. It is necessary after each proposition has been stated to illustrate it by examples of concrete numbers. Further, there are no longer any proofs in the proper sense of the word. End of quote from Heath. Okay? So, let's consider an example of how Euclid does it and how it would look if we did it in Nicomachus's way. So we're going to consider uh, book seven, proposition one. That's the first thing on your handout. So I've got the statement there. I'm going to read it, but you can read along if you want. <clears throat> Two unequal numbers being set out and the lesser being continually subtracted from the greater, if the number which is left never measures the one before it until the unit is left, the original numbers will be primed to one another. End of quote. That's the proposition. And following the enunciation, Euclid gives the setting out as Proclus calls it, and here's how it reads. Quote, for the less of two unequal numbers, AB and CD, and you can see those drawn below, right, being continually subtracted from the greater, for, in other words, the less of the two unequal numbers being subtracted continually from the greater, let the number which is left over never measure the one before it until a unit is left. In other words, only when you get to the unit do you get one that measures them both. Um, and... Um, here, A, B, and C, D in your drawing there are numbers that are being measured. G is supposed as a common measure, and A, H is, a un is the unit. Okay. I'm not going to go through the proof. This is just looking at how he sets it all out. <clears throat> is Euclid's practice to letter, as you can see here, it's Euclid's practice to letter both endpoints of a line as well as its points of division. So we have A, B, and divided at H and E, um, assuming that the number is to be measured. If a number does not need to be measured, he usually names it with a single letter. That's G, for example, because that's the measure that's measuring those lines. So the proof then is carried out using the letters as stand-ins for the numbers and their parts. So that's why I think maybe why he says it's approaching the, the algebraical in a way, because once he's defined those um, part, those lines and those parts, he can write it out using those letters, right, and make it more concise. <clears throat> now. If Euclid had recourse only to determinate numerals, setting out would have to look something like this. Quote, for the lesser of two numbers, for example, five, being continually subtracted from the greater, for example, 93, let the number left never measure the one before it until the unit is left, then five and 93 are primed to one another. The supposed proof would be a calculation, right? Five times 18 equals 90. So with five subtracted from 93, 18 times, we have three left. Now three subtracted from five leaves two, and two subtracted from three leaves one. Okay. Since the following, uh, since following the subtraction algorithm leads me to the unit before I find a common measure, I want to assert that there is no common measure between those two numbers, five and 93. Uh, but how do I prove this? Um, I can go through all the numbers up to five and see if they also go evenly into 93, but when I get to see that none of them do, what will I have learned? Only something particular to those two numbers. Um, so that's why he says there's really not a proof, right? There's no proof. The only alternative is to suppose some indeterminate common measure other than the unit, give it a name such as G, 
and work out a proof like Euclid's, in which thinking of the original numbers as particular examples is pointless, and in fact, it's distracting. So don't do it. Okay. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so let's see. It's tempting to write off arguments uh, by means of examples like this is unscientific, if not impossible. Nevertheless, there's something to be learned from it. Well, I thought, when I thought about this, I thought, yeah, there's actually, when you think about why that isn't any good, you actually can learn something. So uh, we always have to have some concrete representation of the thing to be proved, presented to the imagination, right? And whatever's in the imagination is a singular, it's an individual, it's not a universal, right? So to prove a, th a theorem about triangles, Euclid must give us a particular triangle with determinate sides and angles. He draws a picture and it's a particular triangle, right? How is this unlike using a numerical example? You know, isn't it giving a you know, determinate shape? Um, so you know, like if you look at the second diagram there, okay, to prove proposition 1-5, he gives a diagram like that, right? That's a particular isosceles triangle. So here's what's going on, I think. In a geometrical proof, it's not difficult to look at a concrete individual and attend only to the features that are relevant to the argument. For example, looking at the diagram of the triangle and proving 1, 5, that the base angles of an isosceles triangle are equal, we need to imagine that there are two equal angles and one unequal, and, uh, sorry, we need to imagine there are two equal and one unequal side, right? So you've got AB and AC equal and BC unequal. Um, and uh, which we have to be able to see base angles, ABC and ACB, but we don't need to attend to the relative lengths of the equal and unequal sides. It's easy to see that these details do not enter into the argument, right? We can even see that the proof works if all three sides happen to be equal. The abstraction of the relevant from the irrelevant is, off, is often very easy to do in geometry. But, there's something about the way in which concrete numbers exist in our imagination that, that gets in the way of performing the necessary trick. I think this has to do with the mode in which they must be defined. Okay, so, so to see why the modes of definition are different in arithmetic and geometry, consider how the infinite exists in each. In magnitude, we have the infinity of infinite divisibility, right? So BC can be divided ad infinitum, right? In magnitude, uh, sorry, uh, so in magnitude we have this inf infinity of infinite divisibility and as such the infinite has no relevance to the definition of figures. It has to do only with their material aspect, or at least what I would call the, the material aspect. That is, they have to do with the continuum in which the, the figures exist. So these figures exist in a plane, infinitely divisible. That's as it were the material aspect. The formal features of, uh, features of figures arise from their shapes, right? Geometrical figures are defined by their boundaries, and all their properties flow from the nature of those boundaries. Even in theorems having to do with areas and volumes, where the properties are the result from their, that result from their form are harder to know, it's by considering the implication of the boundaries that we can learn what we can learn about them. And even this is even true in calculus. So that's in geometry. It's quite otherwise with number. Numbers are infinite by addition, growing ever greater as we count them. Having no position, they also have no boundaries. One might even say that a given number is a boundary. That is, a number terminates a progression radiating out from the unit. So I want to maybe come back to this, at least in the Q&A. 
So to describe this in a Neoplatonic way, one might say that numbers are emanations from the one. <laughs> okay, so if you like that, we are thinking about it. <clears throat> so whatever is formal, at any rate, whatever is formal in the number comes to be from the nature of the boundary, that is, from the distinctive way in which it is a multitude. So three is a multitude in a distinctive way from the way that five is a multitude, right? So that's, um, that's kind of what gives it its, its being, its essence. Um, so it follows that unlike magnitudes, which are defined by way of genus and difference, numbers require a different kind of definition. Numbers may be more abstract than figures, as Alvin said, but they are known to us, I think, in a more material way, that is, as a multitude of units. So let me explain more what I mean by that. Suppose I want to define the number four. It is true, but not altogether helpful, to say that four is four once, since that begs the question. Rather, I think, in one way we say that, if you, this is from something St. Thomas says, very interesting, that uh, if you wanted to state the sort of the substance or the essence of a number like four, you say four, <laughs> you say it. That's, that, uh, it, it's, it's uh, one four. It's not four ones, it's one four, right? If you see what I mean. Um, the nature of every number then depends on the nature, sorry, I skipped the, I skipped something. Yeah, so four must be defined as the number that comes next after three, as that number in which a unit is added to three. That's another way to look at it, I think. That defines four in a sense. So the nature of every number then depends on the nature of the number before it going all the way back to the unit. Hmm. Now this may seem to be an unsatisfactory way to define a number, since it seems to define it in terms of something extrinsic to, extrinsic to it, defining four in terms of three, right? But that is not true. Three is not extrinsic to four, since it resides in it as the potency to four that is brought to act by the joining of another unit. I don't know if that makes sense to all of you, but what I'm saying is it's a potentiality that's in that, yeah, so three can be made four, is what I'm saying, right, by adding a one to it. So three isn't altogether extrinsic to it, right? So let me say, and, and I guess we could also say that it's potency in there in the four because you can remove a unit, right? And you have the three again. <clears throat> now, um, now, let me say in passing that I do, I'm not proposing to say how the new unit is added or exactly what it means to add it from the point of view of metaphysics. That's not our subject here. However, it comes about in the being of the number, however it comes about in the being of the numbers themselves, what the mathematician sees is that three becomes four when a unit is added to it. As a simple example of how this act of joining the unit determines a new property, just consider how the new unit changes the number from odd to even, or from even to odd, right? It changes its property by putting that new act. Okay. So, if then, a specific number is the boundary of an act of accumulating units, so that no other kind of definition can be given by us geometers, how do we translate such a definition into something useful for our mathematics? I think Euclid has a good answer. We reason about numbers by considering, considering them as measuring and as measured. The ultimate measure of a number is the unit, and its multitude is, is, is the distinctive way in which the unit measures it, <laughs> if that makes sense. Okay, so what's measuring? Measuring is an act of dividing. The geometer, therefore, divides numbers and imposes order upon them in order to reveal their properties. Now, measure is first known to us in extended things, in things that we can sense. 
Uh, the first notion of measure uh, is of a magnitude that is laid out along another magnitude so that it goes into it a certain number of times. So I take a ruler and see how many times it goes in, right? That's, me that's the most basic idea of measuring, okay? Um, the very name of Euclid's science, which is geometry, means earth measurement. So this refers to this very practical procedure. So although there's something arbitrary in measurement, so we can, for example, begin by either starting at either end, right? That doesn't matter. Um, there is a comprehensible order of the units from left to right or to right to left. So laying down the unit randomly would lead to error, right? That doesn't make any sense. It, there's there's got to be a kind of order in which it's laid down. Um, and even when counting material objects, we tend to imitate the spatial order by systematically ordering the things themselves in space. There's plenty of evidence that in ancient times, a livestock was counted by cutting little notches on a stick. So putting an order along a stick to count the sheep that are out there in whatever order. At least that's the story. Um, and you may actually experience something like this if you're counting pennies. I don't know if people do that anymore, but you probably don't even have pennies. But when you have pennies and you got a whole bunch of them to count, <laughs> what a lot of us would do is we'd make them in little groups of five, you know, five or ten, right? Make a little batch, another batch, another batch. So you put them in order like that so you can count them. So but that's using space, right? That's spreading them out in space. Um, okay. So, on the other hand, compared to that, uh, the units in an abstract number are not laid out alongside one another, nor are they visible in the representation of the number by a numeral. I can't put seven. Where are the units in seven? There's nowhere there, right? <laughs> They're nowhere. Um, and what happens when we subtract one number from another? If I subtract three from seven, which units in seven am I taking away? You know, I don't care, it doesn't matter. It's not relevant, right? So I think from this we can see the advantage of representing numbers by divided lines. Because what you're doing there is you're ordering the, the thing that you're representing the number, you're ordering the units in space, right? Just like counting the pennies. Um, and that's very helpful to the imagination as we go about trying to, to uh, determine the properties of the numbers. All right, does that make sense? Okay, good. So that's a good choice. What he does is really smart. Uh, but uh, representing numbers by lines uh, is not the only possible choice he could have made. Um, another technique that was available to him and one is one which proved useful to some of his predecessors. Now, since the unit is indivisible, it would seem logical to represent it by point, right? Not by line, but by point. A number then would be represented by a set of points since the unit is, as it were, the material from which the, nor the number is formed. And I want to just give a little quote from Aristotle from the metaphysics, despite the fact that I said we're not doing metaphysics, but still I'm going to quote him. Um, he's just describing this approach uh, of using dots. They, that is, some of the Pythagoreans, conducted their inquiry at the same time from the standpoint of mathematics and from that of universal formulae, so that from the former standpoint, they treated unity, their first principle, as a point. So they actually understood unity to be a point, all right? Uh, and so they came up with proofs that I'm going to talk about a little bit, uh, our arguments, if they're proofs, uh, and I call it on the handout there, dot arithmetic, okay? <clears throat> now, it's true that this way of depicting numbers has its use, uses. When the numbers in question have, have properties that are analogous to geometrical properties, such as squares, right, square numbers, this way of depicting them can be helpful for the discovery of theorems. Besides square numbers, there are cubic numbers, triangular numbers, pentagonal numbers, and so on. 
Um, for numbers like these, a visual presentation of their nature is possible by drawing an orderly array of dots, again, making use of space, right? Here is an informal demonstration that's, that the summing of successive odd numbers produces the sequence of square numbers. That's it. You see it? See the diagram? Can, does it make sense? Can you understand that? So as you add to, you start with one, the principle of odd numbers, and you add the next odd number, which is three, and you get the square of two, right? You add the next one, which is five, you get another square, and so you, from that you induce the general truth, right? <clears throat> So um, representing numbers like this by arrays of dots uh, can serve the imagination very well whenever it's appropriate. Uh, but unfortunately, this method covers a very small territory in the realm of numbers. Symbolizing a number such as seven by a line of dots doesn't get you anywhere that um, a line divided into seven segments wouldn't get you more quickly, better really. For one thing, Euclid's way is superior. It doesn't give the false impression that seven is nothing more than seven units side by side, as if it had no character or unity of its own. So if the line itself represents the number, you're saying this number has a character. I'm gonna draw, I'm gonna show it as divided into units, but that could be done different ways, right? It's not, that's not the essence of that number. <clears throat> so Let's now look at a distinctive advantage of visually articulating parts of numbers, whether units or other divisors, by the use of divided lines. Now, so there's some, here's some advantage of it. The lines may always be made of reasonably short length, since any arbitrarily small line can be thought of as the unit. Um, so you can easily fit it on a page. That's the same as with the dots. As mentioned above, we are able in this way to grasp the number as a whole containing these parts and because of the abstractness of the representation, it's not hard to disregard the actual number of divisions in the illustration and to focus on what is essential. You see what I mean? So in other words, you don't need to pay attention to the actual count of the divisions as if you were merely calculating. You just need to see that it's divided maybe in some determinate way. Uh, but whether it's three divisions or five divisions, it, that doesn't really get, that doesn't um, affect your, your reasoning from your imagination. <clears throat> so, I want to see how this works by looking at Proposition Book 7, Prop 4, which proves that any number is either part or parts of any number, the less or the greater. So, this is the, this is the diagram for you uh, underneath the dot arithmetic. Okay. <clears throat> so, uh, what you need to recall or learn, if you're a freshman, <laughs> is that a number is part of a larger number if it measures it without remainder, but Euclid calls it parts if there is a remainder, okay? That makes sense. So three is a part of six because it measures it twice, but it's parts of seven because although um, they're commensurable, uh, three doesn't go into seven evenly, okay? So he calls that parts, being parts, okay? So in the proof, so again, the proof is that any number is either part or parts of any other, any other number, the less of the greater, okay? So, in the proof, the larger number is represented by A and the lesser by BC. Although uh, it contains the, uh, A contains the lesser number, the laying out of BC along A isn't really necessary, and so he doesn't do it, right? Everything hangs upon whether or not A and BC are primed to one another. If BC measures A, it is a part, and all is well. That's, part, that's one aspect, of, one of the possibilities you're proving. Okay, so if it does not measure it, we need only to take the greatest common measure of A and BC, 
And he says, let that be represented by the line D. Okay, so D is the greatest common measure. BC then is shown as divided into parts BE, EF, EC equal to D, which obviously measures it because it's a common measure. That, in fact, is just what it means to say that BC is parts of A. It's made up of numbers which are themselves part of A. <laughs> Does that make sense? So, um, so he's proved it. And all you need is that diagram. It's very easy. Again, you don't have to think about how long I actually drew the line A and D, A and B, C, and D. It doesn't matter. Okay. <clears throat> so the articulation of the lines into parts helps one to understand the reason for the theorem. The fact that BC is shown as divisible, that's what I'm just saying. So the proof rests on the nature of measurement. And measure is illustrated in the lines in a way does not, that not, does not call to mind vividly the particular results of the measurement. Is this not the key to understanding Euclid's use of lines? Seeing measurement at work requires an order in space and nothing more. Okay? All right, to sum up, by representing numbers as a, a number as a divided line, the teacher exhibits its formal character in a sufficiently detailed way, which he could not do by showing it as a, as a numeral, uh, and a sufficiently universal way. Showing numbers as lines depicts them as quantities relatable to one another, either through one measuring the other or through their having some common measure. In this way, Euclid facilitates our grasp of the truths that he wants to prove about the numbers. Okay. So that's that part. <clears throat> part two, why does the elements contain the number books? Okay. Before considering the place of the number books and the elements, we might ask why are they there at all? Euclid does not tell us why he included them, and I've found nothing in Heath's history or any commentaries to shed light on the matter. Since I can't answer the question historically, I can at least point out some advantages for including them. The inclusion of the arithmetical books allows Euclid to show that there is an analogy between the subject matter of geometry and the subject matter of arithmetic by proving comparable properties for numbers and for magnitudes, each by means of its proper principles. That, something like that is often the freshman paper topic <laughs> to look into that. <clears throat> so there are many, many examples of it, and I'll illustrate it with one. I think this is on your handout too. Um, yeah, so mm, no it isn't, so I'll just read it. In 7.13, Euclid proves, quote, if four numbers be proportional, they will also be proportional alternately. So especially for you freshmen, here's an example. Since two is to four, right, as five is to 10, so two is to five as four is to 10, right? That's alternating it. And the proposition is proved from the definitions in book seven of part and parts, the one we just talked about, okay? Now, in book five, 16, Euclid has proved the comparable theorem in geometry. If four magnitudes are proportional, they will also be proportional alternately. Now, this proof rests on the definition of same ratio given at the beginning of book five. Euclid's drawing out of the likenesses as well as the differences between geometrical and arithmetical theorems is, I think, the most important result of including the books on arithmetic, at least from a philosophical point of view. I say this because um, the relation between number and magnitude was a controversial issue for the Greeks, and in fact, I think it's still a question of interest. We moderns are accustomed to the idea that there is a universal mathematics, one which is most properly expressed in symbols. There have been various ideas about how universal mathematics stands with respect to arithmetic and geometry. For Viette, who was Descartes' predecessor in the invention of algebra, 
The symbols and the rules for their manipulation are the same for both kinds of mathematics, that is, both for geometry and arithmetic, but each requires a distinct process of interpretation and justification, okay? But another opinion is that um, arithmetic and geometry are unified into a universal mathematics by having a common subject matter. And that might be called, for some it might be called quantity as such, like just a, a science of pure quantity. Although a common opinion among the moderns is that mathematics is a branch of logic and the symbols themselves become the subject matter. <laughs> so we're not gonna go there. More importantly for our purposes though, um, was the pre-Euclidean opinion that all quantity is the same kind of thing because quantities are commensurable, right? You see what I mean? The Pythagoreans and, and people before roughly the era of Euclid thought that all, all magnitudes were like numbers and that they, they could all be commensurable with each other. Does that make sense? Does anybody know what I mean by that? Maybe. Um, that you would find a common measure, in other words. You take two lines, you could always, they, they thought you could always find a common measure, so that means, you know, they're all numerable, okay? Um, this view could no longer be held after the shocking discovery that the side of a square and its diagonal have no common measure. Have you read the Mino yet, freshman? Okay, so that should ring a bell a little bit then, right? Um, at least that idea of finding, finding the, the diagonal. So at any rate, it was proved by the Greeks that there was no possibility of having a common measure between the diagonal and the side of the square. Um, prior to the scandal of the incommensurability, as it, the incommensurable, as it's been called, several of the theorems that we find in the first four books of the elements had flawed proofs based upon a purely numerical theory of proportion. Okay, does that make sense? So they had proofs of a lot of those things in those first four books, but, they all, but some of them assumed that, that lines were all commensurable, and so the proofs were really weren't right. Um, I'm going to quote Heath again, describing this situation. After, after the discovery of this one case of irrationality, irrationality, that is of the square root of two, as we'd say, it would be uh, obvious that pr proportions hitherto proved by means of the numerical theory of proportion, which was inapplicable to incommensurable magnitudes, were only partially proved. Accordingly, pending the discovery of a theory of proportion applicable to incommensurable as well as commensurable magnitudes, there would be an inducement to substitute where possible for proofs employing the theory of proportions, other proofs independent of that theory, and this substitution is carried rather far in Euclid books one through four. So, I mean, um, so it's interesting. Book five, the, the definition of book five apply both to commensurable and incommensurable magnitudes, all right? Um, but um, Euclid doesn't, is the interesting thing is he's still able to give rigorously correct proofs for those, all those propositions in book one through four, which are, again, were often different from the flawed proofs before. But he wouldn't have thought to do that if he hadn't known that, you know, known that they were flawed. So, um, in other words, all the demonstrations in the first four books of the elements are valid, quite apart from any question about the divisibility of the continuum. Euclid ingeniously shows that many elementary properties of figures do not in any way rest upon the difference between the continuous and the discrete. This sets these books apart from those that follow. Once the universally valid theory of proportion has been established, that is in book five, uh, it's possible to treat the rest of mathematics according to the distinctive principles of the continuous on the one hand and the discrete on the other. Okay. So, by providing separate but parallel treatments, I think, of prop the propositions uh, in the geometrical books in book seven, Euclid shows most clearly that geometry and arithmetic must be developed from 
each from its own proper principles. However, they have many theorems in common. And it's neat to see that. It's great to see that. And I think that's one of the one important reason for having the new number books in geometry, so that you can see that comparison. Uh, a second advantage of including the number books is that it makes the elements a more complete elementary treatment of mathematics. When we take a look at the contents of the books, we see that Euclid desires desired to aim at completeness, sometimes even maybe at the expense of obvious good order. Um, taken together with book 10, the number books give an adequate treatment of the way in which magnitudes can have ratios to one another, all the potentialities of ratio that are implicit in book five, or rather all those that are appropriate to beginners in geometry are revealed to the student. Okay. Now, a third advantage, so again, that second advantage is just completion. The third advantage is that numbers show up from time to time in geometrical theorems. The most noteworthy example of this is in the very last proposition of the elements, book 11, prop, sorry, book 13, proposition 18, which is to set out the sides of the five figures, that is the five regular solids, uh, inscribed in the same sphere, and to compare them to one another. Some of these comparisons involve num numerical ratios. Is that the square on the diameter of the circle, is to the square on the side of uh, the inscribed pyramid, as three is to two. And we learn other truths about in the same way, involving number. So that's kind of interesting. We see solid geometry, in a way, brings together things that are about the commensurable and the incommensurable, about number and magnitude, in a way that's really very, very beautiful. So that's another maybe good reason for including arithmetic uh, in, uh, in the book. But my, again, my, my primary reason is the way it fosters your uh, understanding, comparison, and contrast of uh, of numbers and their properties on the one hand and, figure, and magnitudes and their properties on the other. Okay, so here we go. Part three, uh, the nature of the number books and the order of the propositions in the books. Um, <clears throat> so this is, this is gonna get more, a little more detailed, so I hope sophomores and juniors can kind of remember. <laughs> um, okay. If we grant then that there are some good reasons for including the number books in the elements, we may still find them to be unsatisfactory in themselves as being disorderly. At least that's the first impression I had of them. One would think that a scientific treatment of arithmetic should begin with definitions and postulates and then proceed to prove the simplest properties of numbers first, followed by more complex ones. Uh, that's what he does in the book one, right? <laughs> um, so um, I think what we can see is that if you were to do a, uh, arithmetic independent of geometry, it would look very different from what you actually see in the number books. But I think a key is in this notion of measure and measuring. Um, and I already suggested that that's the way he, he looks at numbers in light of measuring and being measured. Uh, and I think that's demonstrated in the way that book seven begins, the first of the number books. Number is defined, uh, well, first I'm gonna go through the definitions, uh, at least briefly, and see what's going on there. And then we'll look in a general way at the, at the propositions. Uh, number is defined as a multitude composed of units. That's his definition first. Uh, well, I guess he defines unit. Numbers defined as a multitude composed of units, um, and addition is kind of measuring in the sense of meaning. Sorry, not really, yeah, 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 sorry, that's something else. Well, I'll just read it. I've already suggested that Euclid treats number in light of the notion of measuring and measured. This is demonstrated by the way book seven begins. Numbers defined as a multitude composed of units, and multitude arises from the unit by way of addition. And addition is a kind of measuring in the sense of meeting out, as when we count at 75 cents for a candy bar. 
This is measuring as composition. <clears throat> but the more common kind of measurement is a process of resolution, as when we, we begin with numbers, our, our magnitude is given, and we analyze them into parts. To account for this kind of measurement, Euclid next defines part. Okay, after he's defined number, he defines part. <clears throat> this use of part is not like that in the axiom that states that the whole is greater than, that of the, than the part, because here part means a part which measures a whole. So from these basic ideas underlying measurement, Euclid goes on to define the two most fundamental divisions of number into species. I'm going to qualify that in a minute, but divisions of number into species. Even and odd are distinguished by whether or not they're measured by the dyad, which is the number two, right? Um, <clears throat> and so measurement enters into that definition. And the next thing, prime and composite numbers also depends on measurement. Primes are measured by the unit alone, right? While composite numbers have other measures as well. Thus, we see that measure is at the very root of number and its division into species. And we're going to look at some of these definitions. I'm going to do a little digression here because this is something I've learned, I found after I wrote this paper. I found this thing in the St. Thomas's commentary on the metaphysics. Really interesting. So actually, I'm going to read a little bit from, um, from Aristotle. This is from book five in the metaphysics. Uh, it's a section about quality. In the, you've done the categories, right? So you know quality is one of the categories. Here he's not def he's not taking that approach, but he's looking really at the use of the word, how we the use of quality to talk about things. So the first one he gives is that quality means the differentia of, a, of, a, of an essence. So he says, for example, man is an animal of a certain quality because he's two-footed, and horse because he's four-footed. Right. So that's one meaning. Um, but the second one is the one that's interesting to us. <clears throat> there is another sense in which it quality applies to the unmovable objects of mathematics, the sense in which the numbers have a certain quality, for example, the composite numbers, which are not in one dimension only, he doesn't mean the, but of which the plane and the solid uh, are copies, these are those which have two or three factors. So in other words, uh, when you get a composite number like six, it's like a plane because it's got like two dimensions, two times three, right? Two, num two factors. <clears throat> So, in general, that which exists in the essence of numbers, besides qu quantity, is quality. So, um, you've got a, a number as a quantity, but it, it also will have one or more qualities, right? For the essence of each is what it is once, not what it is twice or thrice. Um, so, in talking about this, um, St. Thomas brings out the point that um, the, the division of number into prime, into prime and composite he doesn't talk about even odd, but I think it applies there too. But prime and composite is not in any metaphysical sense or any sense in being a division into species. So it's a logical division into species. In other words, it's a division that we make in order to think about numbers, to do things with them, to have properties about them. But it's not, um, it's not, really, a, it's not really division the way you divide animal into rational and irrational. It's not like that. Um, I think the same is true of odd and even, actually. Um, so um, those, uh, Aristotle, I mean, St. Thomas makes it more explicit. When you say of a number, it's, it's composite, or I think if you say it's odd, you're giving a quality of it. You're not stating the essence of it, right? The essence of the number is more tied up with that, th I think, with that thing I said about it being the boundary or the end of a count, you know, of a, of a multipl multiplication out of the unit. Um, so I thought that was, that was really interesting. So when I call them species here, 
I really should just be meaning that there are, again, um, divisions in our thought that help us to deal with them. So Euclid does, after, he, that, then he's, he goes on to do those things. He defines the, the prime and the composite uh, and the odd and the even. Uh, actually, I think he defines the odd and the even first and then the prime and the composite. Um, and those are the two divisions he gives that comprehend all numbers. So, so any number you take will either be odd or even, right? It either, it'll either be composite or prime. Um, he defines other, uh, other uh, divisions of number two, uh, you know, odd times odd, odd times even. So he's giving other qualities that numbers can have. Um, St. Thomas goes so far as to say that things like that, it's calling a number plain, just use the metaphor. That's what St. Thomas says of it, at least in the English. I didn't look at the Latin. But it, it, Aristotle says something like that, too. <clears throat> okay. So why am I talking about, I'm talking all about all this to show that he does define divisions of number, but each one that I gave you is, uh, relies upon the notion of measurement, right? So it's measured by the dyad, the two, or it's not measured by two, right? It has the unit only as a measure, uh, or um, uh, it has other numbers as measures. And what you notice, though, is he doesn't really define the operations that, of arithmetic the way we think of it. So when you learned arithmetic in... I don't know, grade school, probably didn't, maybe didn't give you formal definitions, but you started with addition, subtraction, multiplication, division. <clears throat> uh, Euclid assumes both addition and measurement, which is a kind of division. He doesn't bother because he figures you know that. <clears throat> also, he will assume subtraction later on. <clears throat> so it's interesting that he does define multiplication, right? <clears throat> and perhaps he feels he needs to do this to avoid any confusion with the analogous geometrical operation, which is the forming of a rectangle. I don't know for sure, but... At any rate, <clears throat> rectangles are called to mind as he goes on to define um, solid numbers, uh, plain numbers, solid numbers, sides. He uses all this geometrical language, again, metaphorically, um, to talk about numbers. So maybe he wanted to really clarify that in arithmetic, multiplication is really just a successive addition, right? Okay. So I thought at first, again, it was strange. Euclid didn't begin his theorem, doing his theorems with properties about the odd and the even, because those seem the most basic, right? Um, you know he does that in book um, nine, later, much near the end. So why doesn't he do it first? That seems strange. But again, I, I think um, I think we might be able to make some sense of that. But he's not really doing what the moderns call number theory. I think it's, he's doing something very different. So he's interested in, especially in the comparison of numbers to each other. So he goes on to define the relatively prime, relatively composite, because he's interested in ratio, right, proportion. In fact, the principal subject of Book 7, I think, is numerical ratio and proportion. Uh, the first proposition, he gives the criterion by which two numbers are prime to one another. So he does a relatively prime, right, before talking about absolutely prime numbers. <clears throat> and the second, he gives a method for finding the greatest common measure of numbers that are not prime to each other. Uh, and then that's needed for a whole series of demonstrations that are analogous to the props in geometry about proportion up to the sameness of, uh, of uh, ratio x equality. He goes on to present a number of propositions dealing with um, uh, sameness of ratio. <clears throat> some, um, some of these have analogous properties in geometry. And especially interesting, Proposition 16, he defines cross-multiplying. Um, so we see right from the beginning, Euclid wants us to be aware of parallels between arithmetic and geometry. Then he goes on in seven to have more theorems about relatively prime numbers as well as about numbers that are simply prime or composite. So again, it's interesting. He takes up the, the qualities of the numbers themselves after he's done all these comparisons. Okay. Um, 
All this, I think, verifies uh, uh, that the subject of the first book, book seven, is numerical ratio and proportion, and the treatment of them here is the very most elementary treatment of them. Uh, the next two books of arithmetic, uh, eight and nine, present many interesting theorems having for the most part some connection to geometry. The principal subject of book eight is numbers in continued proportion. These are sequences of numbers in which each one after the first is the geometric mean between the prior and the posterior. So two, four, eight, 16, and so on. And the first two of these propositions are particularly important. The first says that between two square numbers, there's one mean proportional number, and the square has to the square of the duplicate ratio, which the side has to the side. And the second says that between two cube numbers, there are two mean proportionals, and the cube has to the cube, the triplicate ratio, that which the side has to the side. Um, so I mean, with the duplicate ratio, again, uh, uh, <clears throat> you can see between two and eight, there's only one mean, four. Two is to four is four is to eight, right? <clears throat> and he calls two to eight the duplicate of the ratio two to four. And with three, with cube numbers, like nine and 27, there are two means. <clears throat> he proves that. So that's a really important thing in book eight. <clears throat> book nine, let's go to book nine. Book nine at first sight looks very disorderly. Uh, I, I, hope you, I hope one thing I'm doing here with the freshmen especially is that you won't get discouraged. Because, you know, <laughs> when, you get to, when you get to book nine. <clears throat> uh, it looks as if it's just a catch-all for all the other, inter other interesting theorems. And there may be something to that but I think we can make some sense of it. Uh, nine picks up where book eight leaves off with more, more propositions about figured numbers, cubes and squares and so on. But the point of view is different than in book eight. In the first seven propositions, he's interested in figured numbers considered in themselves, not in their relation to other numbers. That kind of follows the pattern of book seven, right? Comparisons and then the things in themselves. <clears throat> and this theme is carried on in the next sequence of propositions, which deal with continued proportions starting from the unit. So uh, one is to three, three is to nine, and so on. <clears throat> Such a sequence builds up a series of numbers, each of which is the, the prior one is multiplied by the second in the series. So again, like one is three, is th uh, one, three, nine, 27, right? One, three squared, three cubed, and so on. <clears throat> so even here, the individual numbers are of interest. They're all interesting because they're a sequence of successive squares or cubes, or numbers that arise from squares and cubes. So, more propositions relating to this theme follow, eventually leading to theorems in which prime numbers play a part in the, propor in the proportions. <clears throat> so, everything's composite, but uh, prime numbers start to play a part. And these propositions culminate in an investigation of the, uh, the conditions in which it is possible to find two mean proportionals between two given numbers, that is, that business with cubes, right? So, when can you find, when can you find that and when can't you? So, then what happens up next, leading up to the very end of the book, is gets puzzling. Prop 20 shows that there's no end to the generation of prime numbers. This complicated and very important proposition could have been proved in book seven. The only rationale I can see for including it here in book nine uh, is that book nine has been more closely focused on the properties of given numbers taken in themselves. That was true, I think, in the first two books. So it's a very special property as to be a prime number. And again, in this book, he's already talked about squares in themselves, cubes in themselves. So this is, this is an important property. Um, <clears throat> proper, proposition 20 is followed by some others, 21 through 30, 
which are elementary and even trivial and having to do with odd and even numbers. So you'll probably have a class in which you prove all of 21 through 30 in one class, and you'll have time left over. <clears throat> so that's just like an, huh, an even plus an even is even. <laughs> an even plus an odd is odd. <laughs> you know, that's okay. <clears throat> it's hard to see how these are not out of place, and I'm kind of doubt that you could put them there. But thinking about it, after thinking about that, I came up with a possible rationale for it. So maybe not for exactly why it's there, but, but why it's good that he puts it in. So if you want to ask about that in Q&A, it'd be all right. Um, so anyway. One possible way to relate all these propositions to the ones that come before in Book 9, that is the one on the odd and even, is to note that most of them relate to an unending production of numbers from other numbers. All the kinds of numbers he's dealt with so far have been shown to be indefinitely many. Shown explicitly for primes, it's implicit for the rest, right? You know that odds go on forever, right? You gotta have another one, evens and so on, composite numbers. <clears throat> Similarly, but more obviously, addition, well, uh, so, sorry. So you can see that's true for all those and he has to prove it for primes because that's difficult. Um, then, uh, then finally, then you get to propositions 32 to 34 that are dealing with some kinds of composite numbers. And then finally, we get to the last two propositions, 35 and 36. 36 requires 35, and it gives us a way to make perfect numbers. So that's very special. Uh, six is the first perfect number. Uh, it means that uh, if you add up all the possible divisors, they add up to the number itself. So six is equal to one plus two plus three. Now. Um, the Greeks, when they were doing this, uh, Euclid's contemporaries, they also talked about superperfect and subperfect. I forget what they called them. In other words, numbers with the fact when the, all the, the divisors add up to more than the number, and the ones at the less, and then the perfect in the middle. Euclid doesn't bother with those. He just is interested in the perfect ones. So I think it's interesting that he ends the, all the number books, difficult construction of perfect numbers, just as he ends the work as a whole with the construction of the perfect solids. So the whole book ends with perfect solids. The number books end with perfect numbers. Okay. Now, the number of perfect solids is finite, as you'll learn, very small number of them, in fact. And as far as I have been able to find out, it's still not known whether or not there are infinitely many perfect numbers. That's an open question for you mathematicians to work on, I think. Okay, so let me summarize my account of the, of the order within the number books. First, we have fundamentals of how numbers relate to one another as primer composite and how they relate to one another in ratio and proportion, okay? Next, we have continued proportions and how they relate to figured numbers. The view shifts from division, that is measurement, to multiplication, right? Next, we have truths about the figured numbers themselves, their simple production by multiplication, and their special production in continued proportions beginning from a unit. Next, we have the production of numbers of various other kinds culminating in perfect numbers. That's, I think, basically what goes on. This is almost over, so be patient here. The, this is the last part, and it has to do with the ordering of the books, the books of the elements. Okay, so um, I'm not gonna quote all this, but it, uh, it's not clear to what extent the order is attributable to Euclid, but I'm, I'm happy to give it, give it to him. Uh, maybe, maybe not, but at any rate, somebody put it together in this order, so it's worth thinking about it. So we, let's begin, let's see how Euclid structures his treatment of geometry. The subject of geometry is magnitude, right? Magnitude is divided into extension in one dimension, straight lines, in two dimensions, plane figures, in three dimensions, solid figures, 
Okay? This division gives structure to Euclid's work, but not in a simple way. It's not possible to begin with lines and work up to solids, or to begin with solids and work down to lines. Of course, in a way, he does begin with lines because you got boundaries, right, to the figures, so either it's curved or straight lines. But he doesn't start with properties of the one-dimensional continuum as such, right? Um, he does do that to some extent in Book 10, but it's difficult, and so he puts it off, you know, for a long time. Um, solid geometry, we see, can't be done before plane geometry, that's obvious. Um, and um, solids are the figures most difficult to understand and maybe the most beautiful. So it's fitting, seems to me, that the, they come last in the book, okay? So therefore, you have to do plane geometry first. It's too hard to treat the one-dimensional first, uh, and you, can't, you have to do the two-dimensional for the three because solids are bounded by plane figures, so you've got to know about them. Plane geometry is developed at length in books one through four. This section uh, ends with the inscribing and circumscribing of regular polygons in and about circles. In book four, we join together the most perfect plane figures and constructions that are beautiful both to the mind and to the eye, right? Uh, and it brings to completion that first part of the element. So I think that's one distinct part, books one through four. <clears throat> um, book six is gonna deal with, the not, with ratio and proportion in a more universal way <clears throat> in two-dimensional figures. And this study demands knowledge of ratio and proportion in a more universal way. So you have to do book five before you can do book six, right? <clears throat> you have to kind of develop that theory, and then you can apply it to the plane figures. <clears throat> book 10 is the only book which deals expressly with lines, that is, lines as one-dimensional magnitudes. It is the science of the one-dimensional carried as far as Euclid's method allows. Um, I've already said that he couldn't begin with that science, and now I'll, let me explain why not. Extension, whether in one, two, or three dimensions, is like, sort of like the material component of geometry. The science is going to consider the formal aspects, right? So um, the material causes are as such uh, unintelligible. Like, um, you understand them in terms of the form. So wood, if you want to understand the material wood, you have to understand it in terms of the nature of the wood, the, the, the form, its formal properties. So let's consider how lines can be known. First, we can see there's a difference between the straight and the curve. That's kind of clear. <clears throat> um, and some kinds of curvature may be intelligible and some not. In fact, it seems like the circular curvature is in some way intelligible. Um, the, the elementary geometry is interested in those. Um, but uh, you wonder, is there a possibility of studying lines as material, so to speak, the way we study area and volume? So like when we say the area of a circle is pi r squared, I mean, is there some way of studying lines like that? <clears throat> and that's the subject of book 10. Um, but that, its subject is, first, I wanna say though, its subject is straight, straight lines in particular, I think, and not magnitude in general, although it comes to be applicable to other magnitudes. Um, but I think if you look the way he enunciates the theorem, the actual words he uses, the subject he has in mind are, are straight lines. Um, and it even goes so far as to posit a common standard by which all such lines can be cl classified as either rational or irrational. So you start with, are they commensurable? Then you set down a, like a standard line and say, that's my standard. Now let's look at other lines. Are they rational, that is commensurable with it, or are they irrational? <clears throat> and so he's coming almost close to Descartes' idea of introducing a unit into geometry. <clears throat> so I think we can see that you can't, you wouldn't want to begin your study of geometry there. Uh, the, the species, any kind of magnitude is divided by the species below it, right? So planes are divided by lines, or set off by lines. 
Um, so why do you have to divide a line? Points, right? You just take points on it. That's all the way you can divide it. Um, <clears throat> and um, that actually sounds pretty boring, don't you think? And when compared to divide, making triangles and circles and so on, dividing a line by points sounds kind of boring. But so it's amazing that there are really interesting and wonderful things to, to learn about that. So as you'll see in book 10. So um, they're difficult, though. Those propositions are, are, are difficult. Um, the fact that uh, lines can be incommensurable wasn't even known for a long time. Um, the imagination doesn't help you as much. There may be a lot of reasons why those props are difficult. You can think about it yourself, you know, as you either review what you did or study book 10. So it's just too hard to start there. Um, there are even practical reasons. So in book 10, you have to be able to divide a line in, into part, let's say even to e equal parts sometimes. You can't do that without book six, because six tells you how to do it. So you've got to do, there are a number of preliminaries you have to do uh, before you could do book 10. So I'm kind of skipping over a little bit of this. But so, so far, just to sum up the basics here, plane geometry, you get books one through four, proportion and magnitude generally in five, plane figures in books in book six, rational and irrational lines in book 10, solid geometry in books 11 through 13, right? So he takes the things he's known uh, about the plane and about uh, uh, magnitude in general and applies it to solids. Um, <clears throat> so what about the number of books? Why, where, why does he put them where he does? So he, he sticks them in between six and 10, right? So, you know, he wouldn't have had to, he could have start. he could he didn't have to start there. He actually could have put it right before book five, which might've been, seems like, might've been kind of interesting. You deal with proportion in number, which is simpler, and then you go to magnitude. Um, but he doesn't, he doesn't do that. See if I have any kind of ideas about that or not. So I think the key has to be seen in the way that arithmetic is not looked at as an independent science here, not as pure arithmetic, but integral somehow to his approach to geometry. Um, I've spoken at length about how Euclid considers number by means of the idea of measurement. That's certainly not the only possibility. There's other ways, like with Dedekind, we can talk about that. But it seems like for Euclid, the path to a scientific treatment of arithmetic is going to go through geometry for some reason. So seeing number books in the context of geometry allows us to understand the placement of the number books. The reason for placing them between 6 and 10 cannot be necessity, since they are independent of the rest. <clears throat> if necessity is not the reason, he must have seen it appropriate to place it where he does, right before 10. This idea is supported by the character of the first few propositions of Book 10. A careful look reveals some parallels between how Book 7 and Book 10 began. Proposition um, Book 10, number 1, has no equivalent, but Proposition 2 parallels Book 7, Prop 1. So let me quote this. Here is 7-1. Maybe that's on your handout. I don't know. I'm not sure. Two unequal numbers being set out, the less being continually subtracted in turn from the greater, if the number which is left never measures the one before it until the unit is left, the numbers will be primed to one another. That's book seven. Compare this to book 10, too. If when the lesser of two unequal magnitudes is continually subtracted in turn from the greater, that which is left never measures the one before it, the magnitudes will be incommensurable. Um, this proposition reveals the distinctive character of magnitude as opposed to multitude. So again, in the number of books, there he's, there's, he's doing the simpler subject, understanding the commensurable. And now he's making us, I think, compare, <laughs> think about the incommensurable in comparison in some way to the, to the uh, commensurable or to the numerable. And I think that's at least one good reason 
for um, putting those, bo uh, those books right before book 10. So again, another way to put that maybe is that if you have the one-dimensional extension, there are two different, very different ways you can divide it up. You can divide it up in, you can take it, you can take any magnitude you want and divide it into an, uh, any number of equal parts. It's usually in book six. So you can always do that. But you can also look at incommensurable divisions. And uh, to think about those, uh, the simpler one first in those number books, and then the much more complicated treatment of the incommensurables in book 10 kind of draws them together, I think, as a, as a unit. So I would kind of put books one through four together. Five is uh, two, and within one through four, two is a, a kind of a tool toolkit. <clears throat> so it's uh, not as integral to the subject matter, but it's needed. Five, again, is another toolkit, is another set of propositions that are needed. And then six completes plane geometry. Seven through nine give you this treatment of the one-dimensional as uh, well, it's not only that, but it, you can think of it with this depiction of them as lines. It's the one-dimensional divided into commensurable parts. And of course, then that could be applicable to things that are not one-dimensional. Um, and then you have the incommensurable book 10. And then you take all that, all that, and out, the fruit of all that is some beautiful things about solids, which are um, the geometrical forms that are closest to reality, to physical reality, right? Uh, okay, so that's it. Thank you for listening.